Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Clipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews anytime, including films of the 1980s and pretty much any other era of cinema. You can check that out at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today we're going to get into the third and the final of the Hasbro Toys movies of the 1980s, the ones that were made by Sunbow Productions as well as Marvel. Yes, Marvel, the comic books group. We did the Transformers, the movie, and My Little Pony, the movie. There's also another movie that they did in the 1980s called Inhumanoids. That was a straight-to-VHS release that I think combined a bunch of short films that they had made at the time. So it's very hard to find. I was not able to procure it, so we're going to skip that one, at least for now. If I happen to get my hands on it, I'll try to find a way to work that in. And I'll have to even dust off my VHS player to do that, I'm sure. The film we're going to be talking about today is G.I. Joe the Movie. It's an animated feature. It's an action-based. It has a lot of sci-fi elements to it. I'll get into that in just a moment. G.I. Joe the Animated Cartoon as well as the Marvel Comics was something that I really, really enjoyed. And I was a pretty big fan of this. Unlike, say, Transformers where I just had a passing familiarity to it because my brother sometimes watched it. And I had no real familiarity with My Little Pony other than the commercials. G.I. Joe is definitely something that I was really into at the time. I collected a bunch of those action figures. I'm sure they would be worth many, many dollars today if I even had any of them left over. But a lot of nostalgia writing on this one. It's uh, not rated because it was released straight to DVD. That's another fact I'll get into in a moment. But I would probably rate it PG, possibly even PG-13 because of the violent quotient. And a little bit of blood splashed here and there. It's an hour and 33 minutes. A vocal cast here that includes Michael Bell, Christopher Collins, Don Johnson, yes, the star of Miami Vice is in this, Burgess Meredith, of course, the Penguin from the old Batman series from the 1960s and many, many other films, including Rocky, and we talked about Clash of the Titans on a previous episode, definitely a well-known actor, Shuko Akuni, Arthur Burkhart, Jennifer Darling, Dick Gautier, Peter Cullen, and Frank Welker, of course, who are in all of these films. Don Jurwich is the director, and the screenplay is credited to Ron Friedman. Now, the decision here to turn G.I. Joe the movie into more of a science fiction film than it would be like an anti-terrorist strike force, such as one that would resemble the action figures themselves or even the Marvel Comics print version. That's something that's very curious if you're not terribly familiar with the property and you just go by what you know about G.I. Joe going into it. Now, this particular strain of the G.I. Joe franchise started out as an American anti-terrorism task force, if you read those early Marvel comics, or if you even look at those action figures from the early days, it was really built on that. They are there to take down an organized international army of terrorists that soon broke out into include mutants and monsters at some point within the course of the animated television show. But they still were able to keep it on the side of science in terms of explanation as to why there were mutants and monsters instead of horror for the rationale there. Now, one would not consider that a snake-human hybrid or maybe giant gargantuan bugs would be something that G.I. Joe and any of its prior forms would ever have to combat, but Hasbro wanted to keep churning out product. There's only so many variations on a basic soldier or a terrorist that one can come up with to keep a hungry populace sated, although it's just a natural progression where the individual TV series had been running 
in its cartoons that started on television in 1984. It started to gravitate more and more towards science fiction because the makers of that cartoon were fans of science fiction. So that TV series that I'm talking about is called G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Uh, the film really is an offshoot of that. It starts off with this very tacked on but glorious, very high energy opening montage of the G.I. Joe team battling and pretty much succeeding against the onslaught of the Cobra forces at the Statue of Liberty. It's a little bit over three minutes. The scene was intended to cap off from the events of season two of that television show and to get things set for season three. In fact, this whole movie is really built on the notion that they're going to continue on with what happens here into the cartoon series. But the show didn't continue from where the movie left off. It actually ended its run on television after only two seasons because Marvel lost its licensing agreement to another company who was going to put out their own cartoons and did so a couple of years later. Of course, even just being an anti-terrorist task force was a reimagining of the original G.I. Joe, that doll that came out in the 1960s, because each member of the force is very distinct in appearance and their weaponry than any of the others. That's something completely new for the action figures under that banner. The size of the dolls were also reduced over the years to conform to the traditional action figure size of the 1980s that was spurred on by the wildly popular Star Wars figures of that era. And there was actually no character called G.I. Joe. Instead, they revamped that name to make use of the name to use it for the entire task force rather than just an individual person. As I mentioned, Burgess Meredith is in this film. He voices the main baddie of the movie called Galobulus. He's part of this ancient underground race of plants and bugs and reptiles from this land called Cobra-La, which obviously is a reference to the mythical paradise of Shangri-La. The inhabitants of Cobra-La have lain dormant as a force in their underground sanctuary for eons, like 40,000 years. They end up allying with Cobra, who are themselves under dubious leadership at the scheming hands of now bitter rivals, the strong-armed leader of Cobra called Serpentor, and the very oft-disgraced second-in-command, Cobra Commander, who used to be the commander, at least until Serpentor made his appearance sometime later. Their grand scheme is to eradicate humans in the form that they are in and reshape the population of Earth to their own organic style making. They want to mutate humanity into degenerate beasts and their whole inorganic world that they find a disgrace to the planet. Along with Pythona, which is another one of the Cobra Law, they hatch this very long gestating plan to become the dominant species once again in the world. Now, the only force to stand in their way, of course, is G.I. Joe, led here by Duke. They try to keep them from obtaining this valuably high-tech asset known as the BET, the Broadcast Energy Transmitter, which is this experimental device that could provide unlimited amounts of energy to power the world. The BET in the right hands will greatly benefit the entire planet, but if it's in the wrong hands, meaning Cobra's hands, they could destroy the planet, or at least the humanity that resides on it, because that would allow the forces of evil to emit the energy necessary to mature these spores that they're going to launch into Earth's atmosphere that will descend and then mutate humans into these mindless, subservient creatures. That's the basic plot of the film. It's quite a plot if you really think about it. You know, if you gave me 100 years, I probably wouldn't come up with a plot like this if you told me, please just do a film version of G.I. Joe. But some people might find that misguided or some people might enjoy it even more because of it. So G.I. Joe, the movie produced by Marvel Pictures with Sumbo Entertainment, it had been made in order to appear in movie theaters in the mid-1980s. In fact, it was the first of the releases that was slated, but there were production delays that caused the film to be postponed until they could be worked out. And so it ended up getting set to be released the following year. However, the two films they also had in production, that was My Little Pony the movie as well as the Transformers the movie, 
ended up getting released before G.I. Joe the movie. But due to the poor performance of the prior two Sunbow Marvel theatrical ventures, it was decided that they should cut their losses, dump the film straight to the home video market and on television in this deal and syndication. As with the other two efforts, the impetus for this film, at least from Hasbro's perspective, is to introduce new characters, new weaponry into their toy line that included such things as the Rawhides, of which consists of the So Unlucky She's Lucky blindfolded martial arts expert called Jinx. There's this cop and police dog named Law and Order, a stealth guy named Tunnel Rat, the athletic Big Lob, uh, Chuckles, who's this strong man in this Hawaiian print shirt who neither chuckles or even says much of anything at all. I don't even think he has a line in this film. And there's a potential new leader among the G.I. Joes, Duke's womanizing half-brother named Lieutenant Falcon, voiced by Don Johnson. He's this Green Beret who still has a lot to learn about personal discipline. I don't know how you get to be a Green Beret without learning that. He also has to go through boot camp again for some reason. I'm sure it makes sense to some people who've figured it out in their mind. Also injected in this film are the Renegades. Red Dog and Taurus and Mercer, they're under the leadership of the wrestling icon turned G.I. Joe character called Sergeant Slaughter, and they're based on other well-known professional wrestlers of the era. And then there's the new line of baddies represented by Galobulus and Nemesis Enforcer and the Royal Guards. And unfortunately, this also means by having all of these other characters that they want to feature, it means that the core Joes, the, the ones that most people associate with the series, like Snake Eyes and Scarlet, etc., they're relegated to mere cameo status. Obviously, Snake Eyes is not going to have any lines, but he's my favorite character, so I was a bit disappointed to not see a little bit more of him in this film. Now, as some of the line of toys were being phased out of production, several of the old characters were considered expendable by Hasbro. However, killing off of outdated characters didn't really work so well among fans who were distraught at seeing characters die in the Transformers the movie, and that caused at least one character's death from within G.I. Joe the movie to be scaled back, they actually did it in post to change it from dying to going into a coma. So I won't say exactly who that is for those people who haven't seen this film. I try not to dip into spoilers as much as I can, but there was going to be a significant death in this film. And again, they hedged their bets because of the prior experiences for the other two properties. Now, even if you're unfamiliar with each and every character, there's still some fun that can be had in enjoying the names of the characters themselves. There's coolness factor to all the names Duke and Hawk and Snake Eyes and Roadblock and Beachhead, Shipwreck and Ripcord, and I can go on and on. They all have these really cool names. I guess the funniest among them for me is Nemesis Enforcer, who is uh, Galobulus's henchman. His name, Nemesis Enforcer, is six syllables, and it's always said in full, no matter when they refer to it. In fact, just about every speaking part, somebody has to say the name of the character or characters that they're speaking to. I'm sure that's intentional in order to, you know, keep clear in the mind who these characters are. So if you really like any of these characters, you'll go out and buy their action figure. Now, as far as the plot itself, there are a few nifty twists and turns. I think that they're going to please fans of the TV series, particularly in some of the eventful character moments that transpire within this movie. It does feel a bit epic, including the tragic fate of one of the heroes that I mentioned, as well as Cobra Commander's bizarre metamorphosis into uh, a real Cobra, presumably, at some part of this film. They retconned Cobra Commander's character, at least his look somewhat, when he takes his helmet off. He had a more normal appearance without his helmet or his mask when they showed him in the television episodes. But in this film, there's a little bit more to it than that. He's actually much more grotesque when he removes the lid. 
There's also more backstory into the origins of Cobra as a unit and also the characters within it, especially of its leader Serpentor and how Galobulus had planted the seeds for a return of the Cobra law forces to retake the world by implanting ideas and dreams into the minds of Serpentor and his scientific creator Dr. Mindbender and of how they also manipulated Cobra Commander to do their bidding for many, many years, although his persistent failures have put him on trial within the secret society I will say that G.I. Joe the movie is a truly insane action movie, at least the way it's conceived at its core. If you love these kinds of big and stupid action films with absurd high concept premises that will make you like the film for the sheer chutzpah of what it's trying to entertain you with, I will say G.I. Joe the movie is just the kind of action movie lark that you're probably seeking. This is very silly. It's very far-fetched, a bit dunderheaded at times, and very schlocky, but in all of the best ways that live-action blockbusters of the 90s would be going forward. So if you like those action movies of the 1990s, those big destructo-porn kind of movies with a lot of jocularity and kooky characters and kooky character actors, I feel like this is very much in keeping with those kinds of films. If, If that's not really your bag, perhaps this is not something that you want in your bag either. But if you enjoy the cartoon series, or you just like action flicks made by creators that know that they're making something that's illogical, but like to play with it to the point where you can't help but want to play along with it, I think G.I. Joe is one that you'll want to get to know. After all, knowing is half the battle. I'm going to give G.I. Joe the movie three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think it's a worthwhile film for those people who like this kind of movie. If you like schlocky action, especially in animated form, if you're a huge fan of the franchise as it existed in the television series. This definitely offers a lot more of something that you'll probably like. I watched this film twice this week because the first time I felt like I wasn't really understanding exactly what was going on. I paid much more attention to the plot, made a lot more sense, and and I do think that it ended up being a better overall experience with the film, especially in taking in the sheer goofiness of the movie. It really does play everything to the hilt. And if you're somebody who embraces that kind of raw undertaking, you know, this is not a movie that you get invested in the characters or their backstories or anything like that. This is just one of those movies that you just enjoy for the action and for the sheer absurdity of it. And I think it works really well on that level. It's very well put together for that kind of movie. I think they were going for that and they succeeded. So three stars out of four goes to G.I. Joe, the movie. And so for next week, we're going to get into another trilogy of films. And this time, kind of going off of G.I. Joe, the movie, in which plants are kind of like the bad guy, or maybe even the good guy, depending on your point of view of what transpires here. I'm going to start a trio of films from the 1980s in which some sort of plant or vegetation is the main focus of the movie. So next week, I'm going to be doing Little Shop of Horrors, that musical from 1986, Rick Moranis and a whole bunch of others in the film. So I hope you'll check that out. Little Shop of Horrors for next week. If you want to watch that before next week, you'll be able to follow along with the review. And I haven't seen that film for a very long time, so I'm very much looking forward to it. I also want to remind you that I do a podcast that covers new films called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Quipster is spelled with a W, -W Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. So check it out wherever you're listening to this right now. Do a search and you'll find it. So until next week, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.